like DJ said, you can probably tell that today we are talking about something uh, that is deeply personal, but also something that we think is incredibly important. And so today, uh, we're diving into the topic of sex. And so if you are a guest with us here today, or if it's your first time and you're joining us online, welcome. You came on an interesting week, and so we're glad that you're here. Uh, this is not uh, something we do every single week, but we're, we're, we are really excited that you're able to be with us. And let me just say, too, that if you're, uh, if you're a child who's sitting next to your parents in this room, uh, you're welcome in advance for the most awkward next several minutes of your life. And so that's going to be good. And, uh, and no, I'm just kidding around. We actually are genuinely very excited uh, to jump into what we believe is an incredibly important and a deeply relevant topic as we kind of dive in a little bit today to the topic of sex. Now, you might be asking, why are we talking about sex if you're someone who's newer to our campus or if you're new to this whole series? And the reason that we're actually talking about this today is because of the series that we find ourselves in. And so uh, we have been in a series for the past few weeks that's been called Broken uh, Religion. And what we're doing in this series is we're actually talking through one specific passage of the Bible. And the passage that we're looking at is uh, actually found in Matthew chapter 5. And so I would encourage you, if you would, why don't you just go ahead and grab your Bible yet again uh, if, you're, if you're continuing us, with us in this series. And why don't you turn back with me? Let's return to Matthew chapter 5. So uh, this is the place that we're going in the Bible, is Matthew chapter 5. The whole series is really a verse-by-verse study uh, in, uh, in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at here together. I do just want to mention to you, uh, every week, if you're usually part of the campus here, typically what we do is we open our Bibles and we look at one passage of Scripture and we stay there the entire time. That's usually what we do. It's kind of our typical uh, mode of operation. However, today, and I'll explain why we're going to do this here in just a minute, Today, we're actually going to bounce around a little bit in the Bible. I'm going to show you a lot of different passages of Scripture, uh, but you don't necessarily need to flip to uh, all those passages. I will put them up on the screen for you, but I would love it if you had Matthew 5 in front of you, and the reason is because Matthew 5 is going to kind of be like home base for us, and so everything that I'm going to be talking about really kind of stems from uh, what we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 5. But here's what we've been saying in this series, Broken Religion. We've been saying that... um, that when you look at Jesus' teachings very carefully, and when you look at what Jesus actually taught, what the core of his teaching was, which Matthew 5, we said Matthew 5 contains within it Jesus' most famous teaching. It's his most famous sermon he ever gave. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we said when you look at what Jesus actually taught and you double-click on it, we said in a lot of ways Jesus absolutely shatters our preconceived notions of what we tend to think when we think of religion. So a lot of times when we think of religion, we think of external behaviors. A lot of times when we think of religion, we think of going to church, we think of certain practices that you put in your life. But we said, but when you look at what Jesus teaches, he goes far beyond that. And we said, Jesus gets all the way into the everyday, nitty gritty, personal elements. I mean, he goes all the way down into the heart. In fact, uh, in the series, we said, here's some of, the, some of the issues. Jesus gets so personal. Here's some of the issues that he addresses in his most famous teaching. And so Jesus is going to talk about anger and about anger, not just on an external surface, but anger that exists inside of our heart and anger that comes in between relationships. Jesus gets so personal. He's going to talk about sex and sexuality. He's going to talk about issues of marriage and remarriage and divorce. Like I said, he's going to get very, very, very personal. Jesus is going to deal with words. 
how we use our words and how we interact with each other with our words. He's gonna talk about fighting. He's gonna deal with enemies. And so what we said is Jesus is gonna take things beyond religion. He's gonna go much deeper than that. He's gonna shatter a lot of our preconceived notions that many of us have when we think about that. And so uh, this is actually what we're talking about. So each week we're kind of going through uh, these different topics that Jesus talked, talked on a couple weeks ago. We looked at Jesus' teaching on anger, and we actually kind of uh, were able to to pick that apart a little bit. And then last week, we started talking about the idea of sex. And so we started looking at verse 27, uh, where Jesus begins sort of teaching on issues related to sexuality. And so this week, what we're going to do is we're going to return and kind of have part two to this conversation, and we're going to talk a little bit more about about sexuality. And so let me kind of tell you what we're going to do and why we decided to have a follow-up conversation. So if you go back to verse 27, I want you to look, look at this with me again. Here's what Jesus says. So he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we said, here's Jesus's teaching. And last week we said, this is a very radical teaching. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. He says, you know what the religious law says. You know what the 10 commandments teach. He says, but I tell you, it actually goes deeper than that. And he says, if anyone even looks at another person lustfully, they've committed adultery. Now, last week, if you were here, we spent the entire time actually talking about lust. And so we talked specifically about sexual lust. What does that mean? And what does Jesus mean when he says this? And how does that apply to our lives? And so we actually talked about that all last week. If you missed that, you can catch up on that. I'd encourage you to do it. But there was something that I pointed out last week that made me want to take another week and talk about sex. And it was something that I pointed out last week that I said is oftentimes missed, but I think it's very, very important that you see in this passage and quite honestly in many other passages. And that's this. I want you to notice, I pointed this out last week, that when Jesus talks about this idea of adultery, that he links it directly to the issue of the heart of lust. Okay, so he ties, he ties these two thoughts together. Now, here's why I said this is oftentimes missed. It's because whenever you look in the Bible and you look at what Jesus says about issues related to sexuality, he always, 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 Jesus and all of the New Testament authors and all the biblical authors, whenever they talk about issues of sexuality, they always tie it to marriage. They always tie it to issues of marriage. And so Jesus says that the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is not just a commandment that applies to the heart of people who are married. He says it's actually a commandment that deep in the heart applies to every human, whether you're married or not, that there's an issue that's happening in your heart that eventually results in adultery. But what you see what Jesus is doing is he's tying together this idea of sexuality, human sexuality, with the concept of marriage. And we said, what we said last week, we said this actually reveals a a, a foundational understanding that Jesus had about sex, that the Bible has about sex, that quite honestly is so different than the view of sex that our culture propagates today. So we live in a society, many of you guys know this, we live in a society today where we would look at issues like sexuality and issues like marriage and issues of divorce and issues of remarriage, and we would look at those as separate issues, So we'd say, well, sex is one thing, marriage is another thing, and then divorce is one thing, and then remarriage is another thing. And we would say, those are all very separate and different topics. But I want you to understand that in the Bible, that's not the case. In the Bible, all of these topics are deeply integrated. All these topics are deeply connected. And so I think what it reveals to us is that Jesus, that when you actually look at what Jesus taught, Jesus had a very, very different vision for human sexuality 
that I think that many of us would see in the society that we live in today. And so what I wanted to do for today was I simply wanted to spend the whole week talking about what is Jesus's vision? What is the biblical vision of human sexuality? And that's sort of what I want to talk about. And so the way I want to go about this today is I actually want to talk specifically, so this will give you an outline of what I'm hoping to do today. I actually want to show you what I believe are four foundational truths about sex. And these are four foundational truths that I believe that Jesus taught that informed the way that he views sex and informed everything he said about sex. And I believe that these are four foundational views you're gonna see all throughout the Bible, all right? Now, again, I just wanna tell you that I believe that these four foundational views, as we look at them, you're gonna see that they are in many ways stark in stark contradiction to the foundation that our society today tends to build sex off of. Okay, so you're gonna see these are very, very different. And my hope is that this might explain and clarify some of those differences, all right? So I understand that as it relates to our culture that we live in today, the topic of sex is one that is deeply relevant as it relates to human sexuality, but I also know that it is one that is met with great controversy. And so there's all kinds of conversations, there's competing voices about where do we look to define sexuality, where do we go to to do that? And what I'm hoping that you'll see is that I think it really boils down to these four core issues. I think these four truths are gonna help us understand where some of the confusion comes from. I'll also say this, just a forewarning. As we jump into these four, these four uh, biblical truths that we're gonna look at, these four foundational truths, it, it probably goes without saying, because it's so contradictory to a lot of the narrative that we hear in the culture that we live in today, th- this has the potential to ruffle some feathers, all right? So I think for sure that it, it's probably just fair for me to say that there might even be some of us in this room who when we go through these four things, you may even find yourself offended or uncomfortable at some of the things that the Bible is gonna say about human sexuality. But the reason that I'm okay leaning into that and the reason that I think we should be okay with investigating that is because I believe um, that God has given us this, that he's given us this uh, to free us and he's given us this so that we can understand uh, what he intended with human sexuality. Okay, so four foundational truths about sex. I believe these are the four foundational truths that Jesus believed and undergirded everything he taught about human sexuality. Here's the first one, all right? The first one is this. Uh, Jesus and the biblical authors are gonna say that sex is a matter of created design and not a matter of personal preference, all right? So here's the starting place. And I believe that this first one actually uh, explains the main chasm between Jesus's understanding about sex and really what we see in society and culture. And that's this, that sex is a matter of created design. It is not not a matter of personal preference. So I told you just a moment ago that whenever Jesus or whenever the biblical authors talk about sex, they always also refer to marriage. They always talk about marriage. They link those two things together. But did you know, and I think this is actually kind of interesting, did you know that the biblical authors, when they talk about sex, they don't just look at marriage, but they always go back to the first marriage. They always refer back to the first marriage between the first humans. Specifically, they always look back at Genesis chapter two, which contains the first marriage. So let's give you a couple examples just to kind of prove what I'm talking about. Um, On one occasion in Matthew 19, Jesus was being questioned by a group of people about issues related to sex and sexuality. And so Jesus responded to them and look at his response in Matthew 19. He said, haven't you read? Jesus replied to his opponents. At the beginning, the, now notice this, the creator, at the beginning, there was a creator, and he says, and he made them male and female. And so here, Jesus argues from creation about gender, that gender is, gender is a created issue, 
And then he goes on and says this. He says, and he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now I want you to notice that what Jesus says there is in quotation marks. Why is that in quotation marks? Because he's quoting something. Some of you are like, that's deeply profound. Thank you very much for that. What's he quoting from? He's quoting from Genesis chapter two. And he's quoting from the first marriage between the first humans. And then he says, so they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So whenever Jesus talks about issues of sexuality, he always goes back to marriage, but more specifically, he goes back to the first marriage between the first humans in Genesis chapter two. I'll give you another example. The apostle Paul, uh, on one occasion, was talking to a group of people. Some of you know the apostle Paul was, was uh, one of the early church leaders, very influential church leader. And he was dealing with an issue in a church where there was men who were sleeping with prostitutes, which is a whole other sermon for another day. But what he says to them, I want you to know this is interesting. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, quotation marks, the two will become one flesh. Now, where's he quoting from? Well, you guessed it. He's quoting from Genesis chapter two. He's going back to the first marriage between the first humans. And I could give you a bunch of other examples. You're gonna see the same thing in Ephesians 5. You're gonna see the same thing in Mark chapter 10. You're gonna see the same thing in Malachi chapter two. There's a bunch of examples where whenever the biblical authors are talking about sex, they always go back to this, to the first marriage between the first humans. Now, the the passage they refer back to is in Genesis chapter two. It's this passage right here where it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two of them become one flesh. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? Why am I making a big deal about that? Well, here's why. Because what is Genesis 2? Some of you know this, and if you've been around the Medina campus for a while, you, we've talked about this quite a bit. Genesis 1 and 2, what it, create, what it has within it, what it contains is the creation narrative. It tells us about how God created everything. And so Genesis 1 and 2 talks about how God created the heavens and the earth, how he created the animals and the plants, and how he created humans. And it also tells us about how he created the family, and how he created sexuality, and how he created gender, and how he created marriage. And all those things are in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, some of you know Genesis chapter 3 is where things go south. So Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells us that what went wrong. It tells us that there was a rebellion. Humanity rebelled against God that introduced sin into the world, and now we live in a state of brokenness. So what's wrong in the world, the Bible is gonna tell us, is because of sin, it's because of human rebellion. But here's why Genesis 1 and 2 is so important. Because Genesis 1 and 2 give us the picture of God's intended, created design. It shows us what God meant from the very beginning. This is what God intended. And this is before sin entered the world, this is what God designed, and this is what God wanted and what he desired. Now, why is that important? Well, because what it reveals to us is that as it relates to sex and marriage, that sex is a matter of created design. It is not a matter of personal preference. In other words, I'll put it this way, sex is not a cultural construct. And so that's something that we're taught today. Something we're told today is that sex is something that is determined by human democracy. We're told that human sexuality is something that's defined by the consensus of opinion. And the Bible's gonna say, no, that's not true. The Bible's gonna say that if the beginning, the beginning place of understanding sex, according to the Bible, is not by asking, what do we think sex should be? The beginning place of understanding sex in the Bible is not by asking, what do you think or what do I want sex to be? The beginning point, according to the Bible, is to ask the question, what did God intend? When God created sexuality, what did he have in mind? 
when he, when he created it before sin entered into the world, what was the created intention that was behind that? Now, like I told you, this is a very different narrative, a very different narrative than what we tend to hear today. It's kind of popularized. And that actually leads me into the second, the second truth about sex, second foundation. So the first one is sex is a matter of created design, not personal preference. Number two would be this. Sex, according to Jesus, and sex, according to the Bible, is both very good, very good, and at the very same time, it is very powerful. So when you look at the teaching in the Bible and when you look at Jesus' teaching, you're going to see that they are affirming these two realities at the same time. And these two realities, they do not cancel each other out. Sex is both very good and, and at the very same time, it is very powerful. Now, why am, I, why am I emphasizing the word and here? So here's why. Because I believe that these two realities about sex, what they do is they actually confront two, I believe, two unhealthy spectrums, uh, two ends of a spectrum uh, of how we sometimes view sexuality. So I'll put it to you this way. On one end of the spectrum, I think one of the ways that, that, uh, that we can sometimes view sex, or in our culture, one of the ways that sex is sometimes viewed, is that there is an unhealthy fear. There's an unhealthy fear of sex. And so basically what I mean by this is that there would be some who would say that sex is mainly negative, that sex is mostly a bad thing, that sex is dirty, that sex is gross, that to have a sexual impulse is bad or is sinful in some way. And so, so basically sex is one of those things that we need to avoid, we need to repress, we need to not talk about. And really the only thing that sex is good for is procreation. So that's really the only reason why you should have sex. Now this view, this, and, I, I'm, and again, I'm characterizing and I'm stereotyping this view. This view, uh, I believe, would be stereotypically held by, at least in our society, by people who are religious conservatives. So this would be people who would say, sex is dirty, sex is bad, God hates sex, and so it's only good for procreation, and all those kind of things. Um, I, I actually really like the way Philip Yancey put it. Philip Yancey is a Christian author. I think he articulated this view very well when he said this. He said this, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Outside of the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality offers the fullest and most satisfying life. I think what he's saying is good. I think it's actually very unfortunate. I think it's deeply unfortunate because what happens is when we say that sex is a bad thing or that sex is a negative thing or that sex is a sinful thing or a gross thing, it's an unhealthy distortion of what the Bible actually teaches. I alluded to this last week, but I don't know if you guys remember me saying this, but the biblical teaching about sex, if you actually look at what the Bible says about sex itself, the Bible presents such a barefaced, exuberant, delightful glorying in human sexuality that I'm not kidding you. There are some things the Bible says about sex that would make you blush. Um, I talked about this a little bit last week. I think I alluded to it. There's an entire book in the Old Testament that's called the Song of Solomon. Any of you ever read the book of Song of Solomon before in the past? It is, it is maybe one of the most poetic books in the Bible, but it is so unbelievably sexually explicit. And that book is all about a, a couple, an engaged couple that moves into their marriage. It talks about their wedding night in detail. It goes on to describe their sex life after. It, and I'm telling you, it shows you anything anything but a prudish view of sex. In the book of Song of Solomon, you see the use of aphrodisiacs. 
in the book of Song of Solomon, you see different positions of, you know what I'm getting at? In the book of Song of Solomon, you see sex in multiple locations. You see a playfulness. You see a deep enjoyment. There are things in the book of Song of Solomon that I'm even embarrassed to mention to you right now because I know my mom listens to the podcast, all right? So I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you, the Bible has anything but a negative view on sex. Did you know, I don't need to, to, to um, stretch this point out any further, but did you know that the very same Bible that Jesus accepted as the word of God, did you know that the very same Bible that Jesus used to combat Satan in the wilderness is the very same Bible that says this in Proverbs chapter five, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe and a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Some people say, the Bible's prudish about sex. Sex is only for procreation. All right, well, explain that verse to me. That's not what those are for. (laughs) And so I'm just saying, I'm just saying, listen, sometimes we're embarrassed to talk about sex. God isn't. It's good. It's awesome. It's very good. But at the same time, at the very same time, in the very same breath, it's also very powerful, very powerful. Now, why is that important? Because this confronts the other extreme, and there's another extreme on the other side of the spectrum within our society that we see, and I think that this is probably more categorized by uh, what we would see in, in liberal media. I think it's what we would see. It's the more liberal view of sex, and it would be this. It would be that one side is unhealthy fear. The other side, I believe, would be unlimited freedom, unlimited freedom. And basically what this view would say is it would say, in order for us to understand sex, we need to throw off all restraints. We need to throw off all restrictions and we need to throw off any parameter. And so every person just needs to define and have sex as they choose to and we need to throw off anything that's gonna hinder us from that, right? This would be that view. This, uh, this view, I think, Many of us might know this. It actually was probably first popularized back in the 1960s with the sexual revolution. It's only increased since then, and now it's more popularized by what's sometimes called the sex positivity movement. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, but sex positivity actually was a term that was coined by Wilhelm Reich, and it's actually become uh, mainly the most popular view of sexuality that we see in the media. It's the most popular view of sexuality we see in entertainment. It's the most popular view that's being advocated in society today. And just to define it for you, here is how one doctor puts it, Vanessa Marin, who's actually a sex therapist and a a licensed psychotherapist. She says this, sex positivity, defining it for us, is essentially giving yourself permission to continuously rewrite your own sexual script so long as it never disrupts the script of others. Being sex positive means you, you get to declare, this is my body, this is my life, these are my desires, I'm an adult, and I get to ask myself, as often as I please, what do I want in terms of my sexuality? So you probably notice in the sex positivity movement, there's a big focus on, you could probably see this, on me. Uh, it's my body, it's my life, it's my desires, I get to determine my sexuality for myself. And what sex positivity is based off of, it's based off the premise is that we have too negative of a view of sex. They would say we're too repressive, we're too too constrained in our understanding of sexuality. We need to throw off those restraints and that's how we're gonna find sexual freedom. And the sex positivity movement would look to Christianity and would look to the Bible in places like that as the culprit for this negative view of sex. 
They would say, we need to leave Christianity in the past. We need to leave the Bible behind us because it's keeping us, it's restraining us from finding freedom as human beings. That's what the sex positivity movement would say. Now, here's what I want to say about this. I think at face value, in some ways, this sounds liberating. And in some ways, I mean, this sounds appealing because it sounds like, yeah, this is where freedom is found. And in some ways, it sounds like this is a more open view and a less repressed view of sexuality. But here's what I believe. I think if you actually stop and think about this for a moment, I think what you'll see is that what this is propagating and what this is putting forth is not a higher view of sex. I actually think what this is giving us is a much lower view of sex than what you see in the Bible. I don't think that what the the sex positive movement is doing, I don't think it's giving us a more elevated view of human sexuality. I think it's actually presenting us with a more degraded view of sexuality. Now, what do I mean by that? Because it's denying its power. It's denying the power that comes with sex. Uh, I love the way one author by the name of Nancy Piercy, she wrote a phenomenal book, by the way, that's called Love Thy Body, and uh, it's answering hard questions about life and sexuality. And she's talking about the sex positive movement, and I like what she says. She said this, the same bleak view, that's what she calls it, it's a bleak view of sexuality is inculcated in even young children a video put out by Children's Television Workshop, widely used in sex education classes, defines sexual relations, now get this, look at this definition, as something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. That's the definition of sex given to young children in sex education. I don't know about you, but that could be a lot of things to me. That could be board games. That could be back rubs. Right, to something that, it's just something two adults do to give each other pleasure. That's all it is. Nancy Piercy goes on. She says, no mention of marriage or family or even love or even commitment. No, no hint that sex has a richer purpose than sheer sensual gratification. So I think this presents a much, a much more degraded view of sex. And here, here's what I think the truth is. I think that when we minimize the power of sex, when we do that, we devalue it, we degrade it. And I think when that happens, it actually has a trajectory to it. There's, so, so, so if you sow seeds to a group of people and tell them that sex is just something you do to find gratification, that's all it is. There's nothing more deeper. It's just a physical thing, and there's nothing deeper than that. That teaching is going to, is going to harvest something. What you sow is what you're going to reap, and I think it leads somewhere. There's a trajectory to it. And so it's no wonder to me, then, that the sexual revolution of the 1960s is what really paved the way for the easy divorce culture in the 1970s. And the 1970s led into the 1980s where you saw the breakdown of the family, where sexuality and marriage were even further divided, which led to the hookup culture in the 90s, which it's no wonder that that led to the redefinition of sexuality in the 2000s to what we see today. And what do we see today? I think today we see the pornification of society. We talked about that last week. And I think we see the commodification of sex. What does that mean? Sex is a commodity. It's a commodity. It's just something you do for pleasure. It's a good that you trade with other people. That's what it is. I thought it was actually kind of interesting. Vanity Fair, of all magazines, actually released an article a few years ago, and it was talking about the commodification of sex, specifically as it relates to the hookup culture and dating apps. And they talked about Tinder in specific. And so uh, they talked about Tinder and the hookup culture, and the name of the article was Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. And in it, they've talked about how, how in our society today, sex has become a commodity. 
They talked, for example, about something called Tinderellas. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that term before, but apparently it's a slang term, and it talks about getting someone to have sex with you before the clock strikes midnight the day that you met them on Tinder. That's what that, that's referring to. They talk about uh, something called the Tinder King, and the Tinder King is apparently a person who is able to get someone to have sex with them by only using text messaging. No dating, or no dating is necessary, no conversations are necessary, it's simply just sex on demand is what it is. And they talked about how it's affecting us. They talked about how the hookup call, and I know, I know for us in this room, none of us probably want a vision of sexuality like this, but they talked about where this is leading, and they said, one woman actually said this, she said, it's rare for a woman in our generation to meet a man who treats her like a priority instead of like an option. So I think it's a degrading of sex. I think it's a sad thing that we see. And by the way, let me just say that this, this whole, Tinder's new, but this whole idea that sex is just done for pleasure, that sex is just a commodity, that sex is just an appetite, I want you to know that that's not new. That's actually been around for a long time throughout history. In fact, even all the way back in the Bible times, did you know that there was a, there was a group of people called the Corinthians? And the Bible's going to tell us the Corinthians were just like sex-crazed people. It was like, and there's a church that was there that was a sex-crazed church. It was like Christians gone wild. It was nuts in Corinth. And um, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he's confronting their view of sexuality. And one of the phrases that they used to have in Corinth was this. They used to say this, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. It was like a saying that they had. Food for the stomach, and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. And, and basically what it was is it was their sex ethic. This was their sex ethic. And basically what they were saying was, it's an appetite. It's like an appetite. Food for the stomach, and stomach for the food. One day you're gonna die. It doesn't matter anyway what you do with your body. And so just live it up because all that matters is your soul. That's what they taught in Corinth. And I think this is interesting because in many ways, I, I was actually talking with, um, with someone about this. Did you ever notice, I thought this is so crazy, did you ever notice, this, was like, this is like 2,000 years old, but did you ever notice how today, how even in our music, we have this way of, of relating sex in a not-so-subtle way to food? Did you ever notice this? And so like, uh, that, what's that new Harry, not, it's not that new, that Harry Styles song, Watermelon Sugar? Watermelon Sugar, ah, what's that about? Come on, sex, right? Um, or uh, the Milkshake song or whatever, that's like so clearly not about milkshakes. Um, <laughs> Or if you're old school, Pour Some Sugar On Me by Def Leppard. There's, I guess there's, did you guys know this? I didn't know this. There's actually a really popular podcast about women talking about sex. It's called Girls Gotta Eat. Girls Gotta Eat is what that's called. And did you also, I thought this is weird, just notice that they never, it's always like junk food. It's never health food. They're not like, I need to give me some kale. Like that's never, <laughs> that's never done in those ways. But there's nothing new about this. Sex is an appetite. You gotta eat. Gotta have some food. Paul says, no. Paul says, no, that's not true. Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Paul and Jesus are gonna say this. They're gonna say, no, sex is not just physical. Sex is not just an appetite. It's so much more powerful than that. It's so much more powerful than that. And listen, here's the thing. I don't think I need to convince you of that. I think it's like the most obvious thing in the world. I think all of us know this. Sex is so much more powerful than just a physical act. It's so much more integrated. And listen, I don't mean to unnecessarily stir anything up here, but let me just ask you a question. If sex is just physical, if it's just a commodity that you trade, 
then why is it that for so many of us, that for most of us who are here today, our deepest regrets and our deepest points of pain that we have in the past are as it relates to things that we've done sexually? Why is that? If it's just physical, if it's just like playing checkers with somebody, why is there such regret behind it? Why, why, what, what about this? Why is it that when a person is abused sexually or when a person is raped, that that is so much more psychologically traumatizing than if someone just gets beat up? If it's just physical, why is that? I mean, I, I got in a fight when I was in elementary school. Kid punched me in the mouth, I punched him in the mouth. I'm not going to counseling for years to try to unravel the effects of that on my life. But why is it that when someone that same age experiences some sexual activity that it has a, listen, we all know this, it's more than physical. Why is it that when a person engages in a sexual act, when it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance or, or a spouse that we have, they engage in a sexual act with another person and that is so deeply betraying and hurtful? Why, why is that? Because it's not just physical, and we know that, and we know that, and the Bible's gonna say it's powerful. It's powerful, which leads me to the third thing. Jesus is gonna say sex is a matter of creative design, not personal preference. It's both very good and it's very powerful, and because of that, sex is designated for a specific context and for a specific purpose. Sex is designated. It's supposed to be put in a very specific place because it's so good and because it's so beautiful. Why do the biblical authors always go back to Genesis chapter two? Here's why, because Genesis chapter two reveals to us the the specific context that sex was intended to occupy. And what was that? Marriage. The first marriage between the first humans. Genesis two, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. Now, every biblical author, including Jesus Christ himself, is going to say that this is talking about marriage. And here's what I think is interesting. This is not just a picture of the first marriage between the first humans. This is also a pattern of all marriages as God has designed them to be. Commentators will point out that marriage in the Bible, as God has created it, always has three elements to it. Marriage is comprised of three elements. It's like three legs to a stool. You can think about it that way. And what are the three elements? You see them right here. The first one is this. In marriage, there is a leaving. There is a leaving. It says, for this reason, a man's going to leave his father and mother. I think what that's communicating is it's communicating the element of responsibility. There's responsibility now. A man's gonna leave his family of origin. He's gonna move out of his parents' house. He is going to detach himself from his family. There's a leaving that's in place here. I'll tell you something else I thought was interesting. I don't know if you guys ever noticed this before. This hit me for the first time this past week. Isn't it interesting that in Genesis chapter two, it says that the man is supposed to leave his father and mother. Adam had no father and mother. And so this, this obviously can't just be talking about their marriage. This has to be talking about all marriages that God intends. And so it says, it says that there's a leaving. There's also a cleaving, a cleaving, or here it says uniting. Some of you have old school translations. I actually like the way the old school translations say it. They say it this way. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And I like that word cleave. I just think it's kind of fun. It's not a word we use very often. But cleaving or uniting is actually the Hebrew word that literally means to be glued. What's that talking about? Well, I think the leaving is talking about responsibility. The cleaving is talking about commitment. It's talking about commitment. It's talking about, here's the word for it, it's talking about a covenant. It's talking about making a lifetime commitment to another person in which you're saying exclusively, one man and one woman, 
This is saying, I am committing to you for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, richer and poorer, to be your spouse in the future, no matter what comes until death does us part. That's the idea. It's a deep, binding commitment of exclusivity. That's what it is. And so marriage has that. And then the last thing that it has, and it's always last, there's a leaving, there's a cleaving, and then there is what I call a one fleshing that happens. And some of you are like, what's the one fleshing? You know what that is. One fleshing is sex, baby. That's what it's talking about. That's what that is. Now, there are people who have been like, well, I thought that one sex was talking about having children. And uh, I don't know why they say it that way, but they do. And, uh, and I, I think, um, I actually think that, you know, some people would say that this is talking about having a family. The two become one. You have a child. That's the one flesh kind of thing. Uh, but I want to tell you that I don't think that's the case. I think it leads to that. But I think this is talking about sex. And you're like, why do you think that? Well, I think that because of 1 Corinthians, actually. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle Paul looks at these guys who are sleeping with prostitutes, and he says, stop making yourself one flesh with them. And what's Paul saying? Stop having kids with prostitutes? No, he's saying stop having sex with prostitutes. And so what this is referring to is it's referring to human sexuality. Here's what I believe. I think the Bible is saying, look, because sex is so good, and because sex is so powerful, there's only one container that is designed by God that he has created for it to contain sex in a healthy way. And it's marriage. And it's marriage. I'll put it to you another way. Sex is a way of saying to another person, I belong totally and completely to you. That's what sex is communicating to another person. I'll put it another way. We were never intended to have physical oneness without it being accompanied with whole life oneness with another person. Sex is the only, marriage is the only container that can keep sex in a healthy way. Um, or I'll put it one more way to you, just another way to make it super clear. Uh, I'll put it in Top Gun terms. You guys remember the, the original Top Gun? Some of you are old. So I guess they're remaking it, which I think is a bad idea. But the original Top Gun has one of my favorite quotes of all time. You guys might remember this, where Captain Stinger says to Maverick, he says to him, son, your ego's writing checks, your body can't cash. Remember that? I like that line a lot. So I think, I think as it relates to the Bible's teaching on sexuality, the way if I was to put it in top gun terms, I think God would say is in sex outside of marriage, your body is writing checks that your commitment can't cash. I think that's the idea. It has to be followed up with a commitment. So Tim Keller, who's an author and pastor in New York City, puts it this way. He says, you must never get physically naked and vulnerable with someone without becoming vulnerable in your whole life. You must not become physically vulnerable and hold on to your independence. You must become legally, economically, socially, emotionally, in every way committed. You must give up your independence. And if you do that, if whole body giving is done in a context of whole life commitment, it will result in deep soul nurture, in deep personal transformation and completion. Sex inside of marriage is beautiful. It's like blowing on the flame, of, uh, blowing on, the, on the, the embers of a beautiful flame but outside it can be so damaging, which leads me to the last thing, and that's this. That sex is destructive. It's so destructive when it's outside of its intended context. It's so destructive. I think um, understanding this last point, I think is so critical to understanding so many of the misconceptions that people have about what the Bible teaches about sex, is understanding this last thing. Here's what I think all of us know. The more powerful something is, the more dangerous it can be. The more the more powerful and more beautiful something is, the more potential it has to be dangerous when it's being misused. 
Um, one of the most famous illustrations that's used about sexuality in, in Christianity, it's probably an illustration that's been overused, but I think it's been overused for good reason because it's an awesome illustration. And you guys have probably heard it before, but it's fire. I think fire is maybe one of the best illustrations. If I asked you, is fire good or bad? That'd be a confusing question because you'd be like, well, it depends, I guess. What does it depend on? The context. Like, I'll give you an example. I love bonfires. Love them. Love bonfires. I love them in a fire pit. Love hanging out with my friends. Love cooking up s'mores. It's one of my favorite things. I love, um, I love a fire in a fireplace. Love it. In the house, brings warmth, creates a great atmosphere. Love, like the smell of it. I love having a fire in the fireplace. I like fire on a grill. Love cooking up brats, burgers, whole thing. Love it. I don't like fire in my closet. I don't really like it on my pants. I certainly don't want it in my kid's bedroom. Now you're like, what, you hate fire? No. I, I hate when fire is misused, and I hate when it damages things that I love and things that I care about. That, that's the thing. Now, did you, why, is it, why is it that Jesus and the biblical authors sometimes say such extreme things about issues related to sexuality? Why does Jesus say, like in our passage in Matthew 5, why does Jesus say, I tell you, anyone that looks lustfully at a woman's already committed adultery in his heart? And then why does Jesus say, we talked about this last week, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Why does he say, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off? Why is he so extreme? Now, by the way, if you're a guest, some of you are like, what is that all about? And um, we talked about that last week. And so I would encourage you to check that out if you missed it. But why is Jesus so extreme? Is he like, sex is bad and evil, run, get it out of your life, sex is dirty? No, that's not it. What Jesus is saying is sex is beautiful, sex is wonderful, but outside of its context, it can be so damaging. Did you actually know the Bible has a word for sex out of context? And do you know what that word is? I'll actually show it to you. Jesus uses it in the very next passage. Look what he says next. He says, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, And then he says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, some of you read that verse, and it is a loaded verse, and you might be like, what is that talking about? Well, that's next week's conversation. So we're going to talk a little bit more about divorce and remarriage, and we'll talk about that passage. But what I want you to notice this time is Jesus uses this word. He says sexual immorality, sexual immorality. That's a fascinating word. In the Greek... That word that's used is actually the word pornea in the Greek language. You can probably guess it's where we get our English word pornography from, but it talks about way more than pornography. In the Bible, the word pornea is used to talk about sexual immorality. It's sex anytime it's outside of its context. And so, for example, this is going to talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's going to use the word pornea to talk about (laughs) prostitution and to talk about premarital sex. Uh, in Matthew chapter 19 and John chapter 8, it's going to use the same word to talk about extramarital sex and adultery. And places like Romans chapter 1 and also 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's going to use that same term to talk about homosexual sex. And then in Galatians chapter 5, it's going to talk about that same word to talk about orgies. And so that, that say, it's, it's, a word, it's a general word that's used for sex outside of its context. Now, I know that even when I say some of those things, you hear those things with ears of condemnation. And so for some of you, when I say God hates sexual immorality, what you hear is 
God hates adulterers. And what you hear is God hates homosexuals. And what you hear is God hates people who have had sexual relationships with people outside of marriage. God hates those people. And I just want you to know, some people will say that. And that is a gross distortion of what the scripture teaches. God doesn't hate people. God hates things that hurt people. And God hates sexual immorality. If I, if I looked at you and I said, I hate drunk driving. I hate it. You wouldn't say, man, what do you got against cars? Cars are just fine. I would say, no, I don't hate cars. I hate when they're abused. I hate it when it's used in such a way that it hurts people and it damages people. If I said to you, I hate, I hate child abuse, you wouldn't say, what do you got? What do you got? What's wrong with kids? You hate kids? No, I don't hate kids. I hate when they're abused is what I hate. Some people are like, well, God hates, God hates these people. God doesn't hate people. He loves people. And that's why he cares so much about the things that hurt us. And that's why God is going to say to those who follow him, he's going to say things like this. He's going to say, flee, flee. Not like hang around a little bit, not just avoid it if you can. Run from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. He says this, don't you know, for those of us who follow Jesus, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? Look what he says, you are not your own. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are not your own. This is exactly the opposite of the sex positive movement. You decide, you decide. The Bible says, no, no, you're not your own. You were bought at a price from a God who loves you and gave his son for you to release you from what harms you. So honor God with your body. That's what scripture is going to say. And here's what I think that this whole conversation boils down to. This whole talk on sex, I think what it boils down to is that the issue of sexuality in the Bible is never foundationally about sex. Here's what it's always about. It's about trust. Who will you trust? Will you trust yourself? Will you trust your definition, your feelings? Will you trust culture? Will you trust society? Or will you trust God? Well, you trust that there's a creator who loves you and has an intended purpose in mind and that he gave himself up for you because he cares for you. Christopher Yawn is a, uh, is a professor at the Moody Bible Institute and he wrote a landmark book, phenomenal book. Uh, the book that he, that he wrote is, uh, is this book right here. It's called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God and a Broken Mother's Search for Hope. It's a phenomenal book. And in this book, he talks about his struggle with sexuality. And he actually says this. He says, God's faithfulness is proved not by the elimination of hardships, but by the carrying us through them. Change is not the absence of struggles. Change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. I realize that the ultimate issue has to be that I yearn after God in total surrender and in complete obedience. At the end of the day, what Christopher Yon said, he said, my issue was not a sexual issue. My issue was a submission issue. Would I submit? Would I surrender? Would I trust? That there's a creator. There's a creator who loves me and knows the way. Mess the band to come up, and as they do, um, gosh, there's so much more I wish I could say. There's so much more I wanted to say. So much I wanted to say to those who I know are struggling sexually with different, in different types of ways. There's so much I want to say to singles. I know that if you're single, there's all kinds of questions that might come up in light of this conversation. And we'll just have to save those for another day. 
Save those for another sermon. There's just so much that I wish I could say. But I do want to end by at least saying these last two things that I think are absolutely essential that we close with. And then we're done. The first one is something I said last week. I just think it bears repeating because it's so important. And that's this. I just want to say that in Jesus, that in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness and there is healing. Listen, I know for some of you, even as you're listening to this conversation, the weight of it's just hitting you. And I know that many of you are like me. And that in your past, you know, you guys heard a little bit of my story, there's sexual brokenness. Some of you have that in your past. And when you hear God's design for sex and when you see what God intended, you see the places where you've blown it. You've seen the places where you've messed up. And maybe for some of you, all you feel is guilt and all you feel is shame and all you feel is remorse and you feel regret. And for some of you, you might be thinking to yourself, since I've already messed up where God has designed and created, does that mean that I am destined to live a second-rate life? that I'm gonna miss out on the best things that God has for me. And listen, I just wanna speak hope to you right now and I just wanna tell you that that's not true because we serve a savior who doesn't just give you forgiveness, he doesn't just offer you forgiveness, he he also offers you healing. We serve a God who raises things from the dead. And so if you have broken and dead sexuality, you can invite Jesus in and not just experience his forgiveness, but watch Watch what he can do in resurrecting the broken and the dead things in your life. And so listen, for some of you, maybe even right now, you're feeling that. You're feeling that. I just want to tell you, turn to him. Turn to Jesus. He loves you. I was thinking about the woman caught in adultery. Some of you know the story, John 8. There's a woman who was caught in sexual adultery. And there's a group of people who took her out to stone her to death because that's what the law required. And so as they were preparing to do it, Jesus comes in. And Jesus steps into the situation and he sends away all of the accusers and then he looks at her, this woman, and he says to her, where are, your, where, where are your accusers to condemn you? She says, there's none. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. And Jesus offers her a second chance and Jesus looks at her and forgives her in the midst of her brokenness. I believe it's available to anybody. But then I also wanna say this, and this is the last thing is that forgiveness does not mean that we stay in sin. We gotta be very clear on this. Forgiveness does not mean that we stay there. Forgiveness is the way out. That very same passage, Jesus looks at the woman, says, I don't condemn you. And then he says, now go and leave your life of sin. See, Jesus doesn't doesn't condemn the woman, but that doesn't mean that Jesus commends every lifestyle. Jesus forgives, but it's because he's offering us freedom in that forgiveness, not to stay in our sin, not to stay in our brokenness, but to be released from it. Listen, we talk about this at Grace all the time. All of us are broken people, all of us. Some of us are sexually broken. Others of us are broken in different ways. We're all broken people. And we're coming to Jesus as a community of broken people to let him transform us and resurrect him. And so here at Grace Church, we understand we're broken people. We don't deny that. But just because, we are, just because we, we are broken people doesn't mean we should be content being broken people. Returning to Jesus to, to heal us. Listen, for some of you, I'm just gonna tell you this. For some of you, you need to repent. You do. For some of you, there are, there's, a, there's a sexual pattern in your life and, and you're someone who claims to follow Jesus and it's persisting in your life. And I'm just telling you, you need to repent. And you need to turn away from it, not because God hates you, because he loves you and because it hurts you. For some of you, 
there may even be a lifestyle you need to denounce. That's not a popular thing to say. But I believe that Jesus loves you and that he cares for you and that he saves you, not just to forgive you, but to lead you into freedom. So for some of you, right now, you're cheating on your spouse. Right now, you're deep into some porn habit. Right now, there is sexual brokenness that exists and you're going on and coming to church and praying to God and I'm just telling you, you need to repent and turn away from that life and enter into freedom that God has for you. Some of you need to delete some apps that are reinforcing a lifestyle that's not healthy for you. Some of you are engaged in a party scene in a way that does not honor God. I just wanna tell you, and I'm telling you this, it's not popular. I'm telling you this because I love you and because Jesus loves you and because he created you and because he knows the path to life. So would you take this next period of time, would you talk to God, just deal with him on this stuff? Ask him, ask him what you need to do. And then for some of us in this room, listen, for some of us, we need to intercede. Would you take this time to pray for other people that you know right now, that God would break in, that he would intervene because he loves us? Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I wanna say thank you that you've given us words that bring life. Your word is a double-edged sword, it cuts but it gets all the way down to the heart of the matter. And Father, I just, I just know that we live, in a, we live in a moment right now where I can so clearly hear echoes of Genesis chapter three. There's just a lie. The lie that to find freedom and the lie that to find flourishing in this life that we have to run away from you instead of to you. And God, it's, it's a lie. And God, there's some of us who are believing this lie. So Father, I pray that you let your people go. Please. Lord, we, we are in a sexually broken time and we desperately need your resurrection power to change us. Thank you, God, that you've given us forgiveness Thank you that you've given us your son, the proof that you love us and the proof that you're for us. And I pray, God, that you would help us to not turn away from you, but to to turn to you to find freedom and to find life. And so, God, I pray you'd work in the hearts of your people here this morning. I pray you'd challenge us. I pray you'd change us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.